Okay, um, I think we better kick off, though people are still coming in. Um, I'm Saul Estrin. I'm um, Professor and Head of the Department of Management, uh, and I'm happy to welcome you tonight to the Department of Management's lecture series, Business in the Global Age. And I'm particularly uh, delighted to be able to welcome uh, Stelios as our speaker tonight. Stelios is a man um, who lead, needs terribly little introduction. I mean, I think his name and his face appear at us from adverts from the sides of buses, from cars, from shop windows, uh, from websites. Um, Stelios is, of course, an alum, perhaps one of our most illustrious alums, and he's uh, um, remained very closely linked with the school. He's now uh, on the council of the school. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he's a very significant figure because he's created, from, from the point of view of a professor of management, because he's created a completely new business model uh, in a very competitive industry, the travel industry, and then taken that brand and stretched it to a series of other areas, and that's a, obviously a very exciting thing to have done. Um, he's also a, a man who, who gives back. Um, he's done an enormous amount for the school, much too much to mention. I don't want to embarrass him here, but uh, I'll just highlight a couple of the things that are of relevance. The first is that he's in, as many of you will know, the Department of Management is moving to a new academic building, uh, uh, and Stelios has uh, uh, helped us by uh, uh, funding a teaching room. And he's doing exactly the right thing, I think, from our point of view, in funding scholarships as well, uh, and the school has a number of scholarships uh, from him. So, before, I would just like to uh, um, also mention that, uh, and extend a special welcome to the teams that are uh, competing here uh, um, in, the, uh, um, in the EPIC Entrepreneurship Competition, which is organized by the Student Union's Entrepreneurship Society. Now, some of you will know about this. This is a competition taking place throughout the week at LSE, and there's teams from the UK and Europe and Asia. I'm particularly welcome to you uh, all uh, to hear about uh, what an actual entrepreneur has to say about entrepreneurship and other things. Well, Stelios is, the way we're going to run this evening is uh, very informal. Um, Stelios is going to talk um, fairly briefly introducing the themes uh, of the evening, uh, uh, entrepreneurship, brands and giving back. Um, and then we're going to turn this immediately into a question and answer session because I think what we want really is an engagement between all of you and between Stelios. So with no more ado, over to him. Stelios. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, I apologize in advance if... Um, uh, my performance is not up to scratch tonight. It's because I'm not feeling very well. I have a cold. So I apologize in advance. I'll do my best. Um, I, I, if I remember well, I, I, I was asked to give a title for this event. Um, I, I've been coming back to the school uh, almost every year, I think, for the last three or four years. And every time they ask me for a title, I try not to repeat last year's title. So I decided to give a catch-all with four different themes this year. And I'm going to keep it very informal. I don't have a prepared uh, text. You'd be delighted to hear. No 55-page um, PowerPoint presentation. Uh, but I, I did um, promise to talk a bit about giving back, um, entrepreneurship, the environment, and brands. So starting from giving back, because I, I think this is why I'm here, 
Um, can I ask the um, Stelio scholars to stand up? Because um, one of the ways I've, I thought of, of helping is asking, um, sorry, uh, one of the ways of helping is to actually help people be educated. And it's very important that you actually um, complete whatever course you're doing in this school. Not all of them are in the room, but um, maybe some of them are shy. But anyway, thank you very much for being here, guys, and well done. So um, if you're looking for a tip for tonight, is complete your um, LSE education. Don't, don't drop out to start Microsoft. You may not start Microsoft, and you may not have a degree. So that's the worst of both worlds. So um, I believe in formal education. I know there are plenty of entrepreneurs who don't, and there are plenty of examples that you know, never had any formal education. The, the amazing thing about entrepreneurship is we come in all shapes and sizes and forms and uh, backgrounds. But... Um, you know, once you're here, I think stick to it, and it's very, very important. I, I actually did uh, my degree, my first degree here, uh, from the age of 17 to the age of 20, and then I went to the City University for a quick MSc before I started working for my father. I was just told by Saul that um, that MSc uh, that gives you immediate experience in, in business is now available from the LSC. So maybe I should have stayed here if I, if I knew that course is available. But I wanted to work for my father as quickly as possible, and then having done that for four years, I decided I had enough and um, convinced him miraculously to give me some money to start my own business. So, you know, those of you who are here to get tips about how to start a business, um, the easiest way is to start with a rich father. <laughs> you know, there's no way you know, around it. Just not bit around the bush. It helps enormously. So I, I convinced my dad to, start, to help me start a shipping company. Uh, which I, in my arrogance at the age of 25, thought was going to be a better shipping company than his. Uh, the company did well, actually. It went on to list on the um, New York Stock Exchange, and then it was sold in 2005 for a tidy sum of money. Uh, but I discovered another aspect of my character, uh, which is this, um, I guess it's the equivalent of um, adult ADD, attention deficiency disorder, where you can't focus on the same thing for too long. So that's why I became a serial entrepreneur. So I started one company, and then I handed it over to professional managers. And I said, I'm bored here. I can't stand it. If I stick around, I'm going to interfere with them, and the outcome might be worse. You know, I have to go and do something else. So uh, at the age of 28, I convinced my father again to finance the airline. Um, I assume all of you have flown EasyJet. Hands up. Great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. <laughs> Loyal customers. Um, and then I, I, you know, I, I realized that three, four years into the venture, I had two assets. The one was the airline. It's planes, it's pilots, it's airport slots, whatever makes an airline work. And the other was the brand, which is an intangible asset, which most people don't understand or value. But some people value, and some people sort of find a way of making money out of it. So I had this idea that um, um, because I knew the airline had to, float, uh, raise money from the public, list on the London Stock Exchange to raise money to buy more aircraft to become the company it is now. You know, as a private company, we had 15, 20 aircraft. Now it has 150. You don't get like that, you know, from that one point to the other organically. You need to raise capital. So, you know, it's a capital-intensive business. So once I decided that the airline had to float, I thought of keeping the brand in my private company so I can extend it in other areas, and I can keep my serial entrepreneurship sort of habit going. Uh, 
So rather than start uh, with a new brand each time, I decided that there is a benefit. There are some negatives as well, and I'll explain them later. But, so there are pros and cons of doing it with the same brand. But I decided I would rather do it with the same brand. So I kept the, the name in my private company called the Easy Group, and then I extended it uh, to other companies. You can see the list on the easy.com website. Some are doing better than others. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that all of them are doing well. But um, as your professors will explain, um, if, if you're not willing to accept losses every now and then, you're not taking enough risk. There is no such thing as a risk-free high rate of return. The risk-free rate of return is when you put your money with the government or with a northern rock, actually. Now. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, essentially, you, know, you have to try, and you have to try different things. And you know, Now I've done it often enough that every time I start a company, I know exactly what risk I'm taking. I say, this is different, this is different. I'm going to stick to the conventional on that one. Um, you know, let's see which one works. If something doesn't work, I change it. And within two or three years, I, I know roughly whether it's going to be a good business, whether it's going to be an okay business, or whether it's a basket case. And if I have a third, a third, a third as a track record, I think I'm going to do all right. So um, the, not surprisingly, the, the, the better ones seem to be the ones related to travel because that's what um, the brand is known for. It was created and built by an airline, and therefore people, um, once they understand what a budget airline is, they understand what a budget hotel room is. They sort of are likely to rent a car from us. They're likely to uh, get on a, an easy bus to go to the airport. Easy Cruise was a bit more of a stretch. Uh, but I think I've, I've found, I've found the, uh, the home for it now. Uh, for example, I uh, famously decided to use the side of the ship in the same way I use the side of the aircraft as a billboard. So there is a big website on the side of the aircraft. I said, we'll do the same thing with the ship. Now, um, you can imagine that big orange ship in the middle of a nice little harbor. It looked out of place. And, and the other problem is customers actually engage a lot more with a cruise line than they do with an airline. You know, an airline is something that takes you from A to B for a couple of hours, in the case of EasyJet. Uh, a cruise is something you take for a week or sometimes two weeks. So you feel um, you, you're, you're part of it for a lot longer, and therefore you don't want to be on an advert, basically. You don't want to be on a floating billboard. So I changed the color of the ship. So that, that's one example of a risk I took. In the case of the airline, it worked because it promoted direct sales. It was a very specific objective. Get people off the habit of going to travel agents, and, and book direct. In the case of the cruise line, it, it didn't have the same effect. You know, we, we had to change it, and, and I think the, look, the, ship look, the ships look a lot better now. Um, so that, that's probably um, as good a, a, a lesson or a tip I can give you about brands in the sense that um, brand extension is, has risks and benefits. Try and keep as many of the positive brand values you can from company to company, but each industry is different. That's what I've discovered. And therefore, you have to adapt it and, and think of how much comfort the customer really needs or wants, always willing to pay for, more, more importantly. And, um, and then stick to those brand values. And you know, we have the brand values for the whole of the Easy Group that all the companies accept and, and, and abide by. And then each, each sub-brand, if you like, will have to create its own. Um, I promised to speak about the environment. Um, I guess it's probably the first time since I started the airline when the airline came under fire for something, in the sense that um, you know, flying people for less usually makes you a popular guy, to put it bluntly. Um, but a couple of years ago, I discovered that there was a tendency 
um, from especially some um, environmentalists to actually portray the low-cost airlines as the um, reason the planet is the planet the climate of the planet is changing, the single most important reason almost. Um, arguably. Um, well, I, I suspect the reason they picked on, on low-cost airlines is that we are better-known brands. In other words, they have a job to do, which is to raise, raise awareness about their cause. And picking on an unknown brand, like the name of a power station, or the public at large driving their cars, is more difficult. So picking an, a, a more identifiable enemy, is it's, it's easier for their cause. So, you know, fair enough, I'm not surprised they decided to take on the low-cost airlines as, uh, as the enemy. Um, the difference between EasyJet and some of our competitors is that we do care about the impact we have on others and the environment. All the companies care. Caring is, being caring is one of our brand values, if you like. So um, uh, there's a guy called Michael O'Leary that runs Ryanair and you know, openly speaks about environmentalists being nutcases. Um, that's a very good way to engage a dialogue, you know, it's, if you're going to antagonize them, that's what you do. You offend them. So, you know, we decided that um, we have a good story to tell and we're going to tell a story. And we care and we're going to do something about it. But the way I usually try and explain it in simple terms is that travel is good for you. It's also good for me as a shareholder. But I think the world is a better place when people can travel. Um, at the risk of... Um, using an extreme um, example, um, Stalinist states have prevented people from traveling away from the country. And I don't think that model worked. I, I, think, I think the world is a better place where you can actually travel freely. The market decides how much you pay and, and you, know, you know, how far you go and what mode of transport you go. And um, I, I think it promotes cultural understanding, which in, in turn promotes peace and, and, and uh, you know, averts wars between nations. You know, it, it's not that long ago that Europe um, was at war with each other, within, within Europe, the countries, only about 60 years ago. I can safely say that you know, within Western Europe there's not going to be another war, touch wood, because there's so many people who've traveled around, who have friends, have relatives, have second homes, you know, cross-border marriages now. You know, it's become more like the United States of Europe, of, of America, the United States of Europe. So um, I think travel has a positive side effect. So the point is for the environment, how do we actually mitigate the effect it has on the planet? And um, in, in simple terms, and I'll leave it there and then take questions, um, a rule of thumb I use is that if a service is actually cheaper, usually it consumes less energy and therefore it has less impact on the, on the planet. You know, it's not 100% true all the time, but a private jet, if you, if you charter, if any of you are lucky enough in the future to be able to travel in a private jet, um, that is, may, many of you may travel already, I don't know, but that is the least environmentally friendly way to fly, an entire jet for one person. You take a brand new Airbus, you pack it with 156 people on EasyJet, you know, um, it takes off, it lands, Per person, that's probably the most efficient way of getting from A to B. And don't get sidetracked by sort of things like the trains, because the two are not really in competition. The trains win if they can get people there in under three hours. The planes win you know, over that. 
And you're not going to get people to go by train from Belfast to Amsterdam, which is technically impossible. There are two bits of water between. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that you know, in the last couple of years we've, made in, we've been making some progress in, in telling our story and explaining that we care and we do something about it. We've introduced carbon offsetting, but I'm sure some of you will have more probing questions on that. So on this note, I'll open it up to questions. Thank you. Uh, if you could just uh, wait one sec. We've got guys... Um, with Microphones, yeah. And otherwise people won't hear upstairs. Also, could you just say who you are and where you're from before you ask your questions? Uh, my name is Mark, and I have uh, a couple of businesses with my business partner here, Tom. Um, hi, Stelios. Um, hi. Can I ask one question? Because I, I think... Uh, how, how many of you are entrepreneurs here as opposed to students? Great. Yeah, we have a good... And how many of you want to be entrepreneurs? Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Please. Uh, just interested in the, in the car, carbon offsetting. Yeah. Um, do you think that the government should do more to require airlines to uh, require the public to carbon offset? Um, if you go on the EasyJet website and you book a flight, um, uh, halfway through the booking you'll be asked to opt in or opt out of a, of a carbon offsetting scheme um, that contributes to a project in uh, Central America. Um, we believe that's the most efficient way we can do it now. Um, by the way, most people uh, overestimate what is the impact on the environment in, in, in terms of cost, cost of buying the, the offset. Uh, if you asked people, they would have said 20, 30 pounds. In reality, for an easy flight, is you know, a couple of three pounds. Some are less, some are more, if they're longer. But um, you can actually, if, if you're... If you want to satisfy your conscience now, you can do it, and a small percentage do it. Now, the governments of Europe are introducing an emissions trading scheme as a whole for all airlines, as they've done in other industries. As everything with the European Union, it takes too long, so I think it will be 2011, if not 2012. Um, in simple terms, again, because you obviously sound someone who's in the business, but there are people who might not be familiar, but... In simple terms, it means that each company um, is given a certain uh, allocation of, of rights to pollute, um, question mark whether they're granted for free or auctioned off for an amount of money, but that's a variation on the theme. But once you're given certain rights, if you want to pollute more, you have to go and buy more rights, and that creates a market for, 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 for polluting rights and, and therefore for carbon, and therefore it encourages more environmentally friendly behavior. It would encourage, for example, Alitalia to renew its fleet uh, rather than fly these old uh, gas guzzlers around if they can find the money. Now, um, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the problem with that is it's European rather than global. Um, the, the natural home for something like that in the airline industry would have been something called the ICAO, ICAO which is the, uh, international, the United Nations body for aviation. Um, but because the Americans have such a big influence on it, you know, I don't think anything will happen there. American Airlines in, in general, um, American Airlines as a brand as well, but generally airlines based in the United States of America have very, very old aircraft because they've underinvested, you know, especially after September 11th. So the last thing they want is something that penalizes gas guzzlers. In America, they like gas guzzlers and cars and everything, so... You know, I'm not optimistic it will happen globally, but something will happen in, in Europe in the next few years. 
lady over there. Hello, um, I'm from London School of Economics Media Group. Um, I wanted to ask um, if there are areas you think that your brand and what it stands for will not work. Uh, absolutely. The, 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 the list is very long, don't worry. Uh, um, I don't know if this would... It actually works. Let me try. No. <laughs> okay. This, this is not um, live, but uh, essentially if, if you could go to the brand values, you can see the eight brand values we've uh, agreed now that they have to be, you have to tick uh, before you, you, you're entitled to the easy brand. And, and if you look at the values, is, is the things that doesn't allow more than the things that allows. Um, for example, uh, I've received a number over the years a number of business plans for funeral parlors. <laughs> Easy death, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> now, uh, I, I'm sure there are people who make money in that business, uh, you know, and I have respect for every entrepreneur that tries to make money, but you know, somehow I think that you know, uh, uh, something as grim as that or something which is not fun, because one of our brand values is fun, you know, it just wouldn't, wouldn't add to the brand. Um, the, the other thing you do by actually saying you have to make a difference in people's lives, you have to be caring and fun and everything else, it cuts out a lot of the B2B. I mean, it is a consumer-facing brand. I wouldn't put this brand on a refinery in, um, you know, outer Mongolia. It, it's unnecessary. You know, it's, it's not close enough to, to, the, to the consumer, and therefore we'll put it at risk without any reason. Um, my shipping company, uh, the one I sold, the oil tankers, it was called Stelma, a different brand, uh, you know, after my, the first four letters of my name. And, you know, half-jokingly we said we should remain in, rename it Easy Tankers, but, you know, we said uh, there's no reason. Because people in that business, it's a B2B industry, very few people are potential buyers of that service. They, they don't need to know the Easy brand. It's, uh, you build different brand values there. All right? I'm a general, I'm a general course student from uh, the Department of Management. Um, you mentioned about the pros and cons of uh, brand extensions. So, uh, would you give us a few examples? Yeah. Uh, about that. Good, good question. I'm glad you're listening. Um, the, the benefit is that you start with uh, a certain amount of name recognition. So, if I tell you now, Easy Office, which is the latest company I started which is the business, it's this one here, which is the business that does, um, provides temporary office space for, for entrepreneurs, startup companies. You know, and, and you are on Google and you're trying to find an office space and you see our name and you click through and it's orange and it's in the right font and says from Stelios, you're more likely to take your credit card out and give me 5,000 pounds. It's as simple as that in the sense that, you know, um, you know, that would be for several months' worth of rent, but essentially that's what these people are doing. They're trusting us that you know, when, when, when they turn up at the office, the office will be there, and we've taken their money, and we'll give them an office. Same with a cruise. You know, you, 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 someone living in America buys a cruise in the hope that she will be in Athens when they arrive. So trust, name recognition, certain brand values transfer well, and, and that's why I keep doing it that way. I'd rather not start again every time. You know, I don't think I could have conceivably started 17 separate brands and 17 separate businesses. It just wouldn't work. Now, the, 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 the drawbacks, two of them I would say I mentioned now, 
Um, first of all, you're carrying all of the brand values of the airline with you because it's so much bigger than the others and so much better known. So it's kind of difficult to explain to someone that Easy Cruise actually does have comfortable big suites <laughs> with frills in them <laughs> because EasyJet is so well defined for a two-hour flight with a you know, specific seat. You know, people talk about Easy Cruise and say, does it have food or is it only peanuts on board? You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> You know, and, and you have to explain it to the people who are interested. I mean, you don't have to make it a universally known brand. But, you know, you're carrying with you most of the brand values of, of the biggest brand. Um, the other problem, financially, is that you can't allow any of them to fail. You, you know, if I make a mistake, I pay for it, I keep going, I change it, but I can't allow it to go bankrupt. Um, I wish I could get the government to bail me out, actually, like the Northern Rock. But uh, um, the... My fear, and that's why I'm not interested in testing it, is let's say one of the businesses is not doing well. And I say, well, I don't want to put in another million. And, and you do what you do when you don't want to put any more money into a business in a limited liability company, you put it into bankruptcy. That means people unemployed. That means consumers left with debt. And I think in, in, on this side of the Atlantic, the, the, the public is not willing to accept that. So... You know, the downside is if you make a mistake, you keep paying until you fix it. So, you know, that consumes more capital. So, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous business, basically, brand extension. It's, don't try it at home. It's not for the faint-hearted. Let's take, yeah, the gentleman at the front row upstairs, yeah. Hi. Um, organizational social psychology student at LSE. I'd like to re just refer you to criticism you received when you opened Easy Cinema in Milton Keynes, where people said you were uh, devaluing art. So you spoke about the impact on the environment. What about impact on the industries? Um, there is a reason this cinema in Milton Keynes doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, um, I, um, w when I um, started looking for brand extension, what normally happens is people from other industries come to me and say, why don't you apply the brand on, on my industry? So I, I had an approach and a chat with a guy that was running one of the major uh, chains um, and said, why don't we apply this yield management system and everything else to fill the cinemas, you know, look how empty they are, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, being... <laughs> All right. <laughs> Provided I'm not making the noise, I'm Okay. <laughs> So um, the, uh, the problem with yield management in the cinema business, in the sense that um, the idea of the airline that some seats are worth, should we worry about that? What is it? Oh, it's a baby. Okay. <laughs> Fine. They're starting young, exactly. I thought it was a cat, actually, at the beginning of the day. <laughs> Babies are welcome, no problem. So, the, um, uh, the point about yield management is that um, art is sold on the basis of hype. So, when you create the next James Bond movie, you start marketing it religiously, diligently, months before. You start releasing pictures, photographs of the stars, you know, anecdotes, you know, they, fall in love, fall out of love, break up, you know, you build the excitement, it happens, and then you sell it on DVD, etc., etc. So the last thing you want is some idiot like me selling James Bond for 20 pence when you convince the world is worth 12 pounds. 
maybe the seat at seven o'clock in the mo- at nine o'clock in the morning in Milton Keynes on a Tuesday is worth twenty pence, but the the owners of the movie and that's the problem didn't want that advertised. Um, and the problem is that unlike um, let's say Boeing or Airbus that they sell you the aircraft and off you go, um, the guys that make the movies, the Hollywood studios, actually own them. They only give you a license. So they, they never actually accepted the yield management principle. So we had to become conventionally priced, and then I said, well, why am I bothering? Why do I need the real estate? The real estate market is very tight because it's difficult to build new uh, cinemas nowadays, and, and all of a sudden it got consolidated by a private equity firm that was interested in real estate. So, you know, is the cinema has been changed from that to two, two things nowadays. Um, a listing service where you can buy tickets on other people's cinemas, so an, an online service like Fandango or... or um, Forget the other one in the States. Again, I went to the States. I had a I look what was there, and I tried to bring it here. And, um, again, an idea from the States called Netflix, which is online rental of DVDs, if you like, the, the latest version of the video club, you know, competing with um, Blockbuster. So, um, you know, th- that's how I sort of solved that issue. I hope that answers the question, and sorry for devaluing James Bond. <laughs> Gentleman in the middle there. I shouldn't pick people in the middle because the microphone is difficult to get to. <laughs> no, that would be unfair to people. Hi, Stelios. Okay, um, we'll hello. take that one first. Sorry. P- please keep it and then we pass it on. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Stelios. Um, I'm in the business-to-business market. If you didn't have Easy Brand at all when you would start again uh, with some help from your father, what market would you go into in business-to-business? And how would you assess... If I, if I didn't have a rich father, I didn't have the easy brand. Yeah, forget about the easy brand. Yeah. Starting off now. If I, if I were an aspiring entrepreneur trying to run my own business now with limited capital, I'll probably buy a franchise from someone else. Uh, it's so much safer. It reduces the risk. I mean, building your own brand sounds good and ambitious and everything else, but if you haven't got a lot of capital, it might be a lot safer to you know, pay whatever it is, half a million or a million, and buy a McDonald's franchise or a Subway franchise or, or so many, a, a hotel franchise. Most of the hotel businesses are franchised now. Um, and, I, you know, ironically, the reverse of it is many of my businesses now franchise out because we have the brand and people say, well, I have the building, an easy hotel. Um, you know, it's operating half empty and it's um, dilapidated. If I'm going to invest the money in making the upgrade to the building, I might as well put a brand on it and get the bookings. So, um, yeah, um, given what I know now, I wouldn't probably take the risk of starting EasyJet. You know, uh, it, it was too much risk. But there is a school of thought. Uh, you know, there are all, all sorts of ages in this room, but I know there are many young students. There's a school of thought that the, the, the perfect age to take a big risk is about 28, 29, because you have enough experience he doesn't agree with me. He wants to start, <laughs> he wants to start younger. <laughs> so uh, you have enough experience, you've seen enough, and yet you're young enough not to know the downside. <laughs> All right, so let's take the other question, yeah? Hi, Stelos. Uh, I'm wondering how you feel about CSRs. Is it some kind of uh, faddish publicity stunt for p- company support, or is it something more sustainable Co- than that? Corporate social responsibility. Yeah. Um, um, I think every company needs to demonstrate that it cares about the impact it has on, on, on others and, and the environment. 
um, you know, it, it is a bit of a um, it is a bit of a cycle. In other words, sometimes it's more um, companies devote more time and effort into it and put more money. Um, I'm, I'm afraid that if we're hit by a serious recession, the priorities of that sort of budget and that department may go down. Um, I, I was fascinated. Every year I go to this um, event in Davos at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. And um, you know, last year the topic was climate change. This year the event happens at the end of January. It was right in the middle of the meltdown of the markets. Guess what everybody was talking about? You know, and SOCGEN happened in the middle of it. So everybody was talking about the meltdown in the markets, the recession. So, you know, it's human nature that, you know, people talk more about it when times are good and less about it when times are not good. Um, however, I'd like to make a distinction here that I, I don't see that as being the same as giving back as an individual in the sense that, you know, companies do it because it's good for them and it's good for their brand. And there's no other reason to do it, if you know what I mean. Why would they uh, spend shareholders' money for, on anything other than what enhances their own reputation? Whilst... An, an individual can give back, and you can choose to do it secretive, in a secret way, in an open way. Um, you can choose to, um, you know, you can choose your cause, which has nothing to do with where you made your money. So, um, you know, corporate social responsibility and, and charity or giving back by individuals is not the same thing. All right, uh, there's a gentleman over there. Was, uh, it's probably related because you've been trying to answer uh, uh, further down. Um, expanding on that corporate social responsibility aspect, um, for those employees that you have who do not come from countries with national health care, do you provide a basic level of health insurance for your part-time employees? Full-time. I mean, we don't employ that many people outside the UK. So what, what do you have in mind? Can you elaborate? In other words, I'm trying to understand if you have a specific thing in mind. Well, do you, do you have to have employees on the other side wherever you're flying to, or do you? They're, do you they're let subcontractors, actually. The subcontract. They're, they're subcontractors, right. yeah. Then, uh, with the agreements with those third parties, do, um, do you require or do you request that those employees that they employ have some sort of basic level of health insurance? Um, I, I don't know the details of, of, of the contracts with the uh, ground handlers, which are the people who handle uh, passengers at the other airport. Um, my guess is that because continental Europe is actually uh, up on, on national health and, and national insurance on the UK, the contributions are probably higher in France, for example. So um, I, my guess is they're complying with local laws that have plenty of provisions for it. We don't operate in third world countries, if that's what you're asking me. So maybe the answer would have been different. I'll take a question from down here, the gentleman over there. Uh, hello, so obviously you're thinking of new ideas the whole time. How do you think of new ideas, and do you have a team of people coming up with other things, other ideas? Um, I, I have to admit I'm not looking for too many new ideas at the moment. <laughs> I've, I've got enough on my plate. Um, as I said, there is a risk every time you extend the brand, so you better be confident. And you know, If you think about it, there are diminishing returns. <laughs> You know, the 17th or 18th one is less likely to be as obvious or as successful as the ones already in existence. So, uh, you know, my current thinking is, you know, if I focus on the ones that work and sort out the ones that work less well, maybe start one new a year, if that, maybe one every two years. Easy Office was my startup last year. 
And I'm not sure I'm going to do one this year. See how it goes. Um, the, the irony of the whole thing and, and the sad thing is that if you open up the floodgates and you say, bring me ideas, you end up in this impossible dialogue where people say, I have this idea and you should give me half the company and we should start it together. <laughs> you, know, you put the brand, you put the capital, I put the idea, I own half the company. And of course, it's not a you know, credible proposition. So you end up offending people by saying no, no, no. And no offense to these people, but most of the ideas have been talked about already in the sense, you know, I want to start a budget hotel chain. Hello? <laughs> Other people have done it before, you know. So, you know, there are very, you know, I, I wish Google was called Easy Search, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, 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 but nobody approached me in 1998 and told, told me, you know, let's, let's extend the brand to, to search. Um, have you, building all the companies, have you had to be uh, particularly adept at dealing with your suppliers? Adaptive in dealing with adaptive suppliers? In terms of being able to kind of uh, screw them down and get the best. <laughs> That's how I feel about suppliers. <laughs> um, I mean, living aside the language, I'm, I'm very um, um, sort of strict with all our colleagues that whenever you're buying something, you should get three bids and create competitive tension, create a contestable market between suppliers to make sure that you buy at the right price. Um, and it's not always the same as economies of scale. Um, sometimes you try and group demand to get a better price. Say, you know, this company buys this and that company buys this. Why don't you go and buy together? What I've discovered, actually, is that the companies have different needs, and when we try to group buy, you're actually going backwards. It's worse. So... Um, you know, each company has to do the best for its own shareholders by exploiting a contestable market and you know, obtaining three bids and you know, trading the one off against the other to get the best price. But I, I don't believe in group purchasing. Right at the back and then right in front. Hi, Stelios. Um, would you say that the fact that you yourself are a very identifiable figure in Britain has helped tremendously in your business and have you kind of tried to um, you know beef up your, your public persona to, to achieve that uh, and also would you say that being an airline owner seems to, to have that effect because everyone thinks of the other most well known businessman is probably Richard Branson uh, I think your second point is actually the, 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 the valid one in the sense that there's something about airlines that make their founders fairly famous and, you know, some people become more famous, some people become less famous. But you know, even people like Sir Freddie Laker, the, the late Sir Freddie Laker, became famous for failing. Uh, he, uh, in my mind, he was the true pioneer. He was the guy who started all of this, if you like, and he was ahead of his time, and that's why the big airlines put him out of business, and he won in court. But, you know, he won a certain amount of fame and notoriety that, you know, normally is not afforded to people who go out of business, if you know what I mean. So airlines create brands, and, you know, I became, you know, at the beginning you can't afford advertising. So anything that gets your brand mentioned, you do it. I think the, 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 the tipping point for the EasyJet brand and, and probably my personal uh, name recognition was when Go, a British Airways subsidiary, launched its first flight in 98. And remember, EasyJet was only an airline with five aircraft and three years old, based in Luton, so a tiny little thing, and this was the world's favorite airline uh, launching a low-cost subsidiary, 
and I managed to buy 10 tickets to go on the first flight. Uh, you know, paid for them normally, turned up. Um, we decided to make a bit of fun without actually causing offense. So we dressed in all orange boiler suits, and I walked up and down the plane, and I handed free tickets on EasyJet. So, <laughs> so by the end of the flight, it was almost as if it was an EasyJet flight. And, and guess what? All the reporters who were there because it was British Airways reported on, on us and, and what we did. So, you know, you, you, need, you know, you need publicity stunts like that to build a brand. Um, can I pull it off today? Not necessarily, because unfortunately after 13 years you become a bit, of, of, <laughs> a bit more of a member of the establishment. You know, that's the problem. And then they give you a, a knighthood. That's the worst thing, actually. <laughs> you know, you, you can't play the little guy anymore, so that's a, a problem now. So um, that's what the establishment does, I think. They, they bring you in by giving you a knighthood so that you can't fight them anymore. So, um, you know, I, I would recommend to anybody starting a business, use your persona to promote your own business at the beginning. You need it. There's no other way of doing it. Uh, you know, when the company grows up and has a big advertising budget, step back. I mean, you will not see a single EasyJet advert with me on it now. Um, you'll see me on EasyBuses because EasyBus needs some help. And, you know, I'll be at the launch of the next Easy Cruise ship because, of course, I'll be there. It's my sort of launch party. But, you know, when, it makes, when it's relevant for me to be there, I'll be there. But, you know, I, I think the company should stand on their own two feet now. All right, let's take a question from this end. Right at the back, the gentleman there. And then the lady to the right, my right. Hi. Hi, my name is Nadir. Uh, uh, my question is, um, you've got an area of uh, businesses there, is it Jet, uh, International Value. I'm just wondering what criteria, what are the major criteria you use to enter into a new business? How did you define, yes, this is the business I want to get into? And my second question is, what's your take on Northern Rock being nationalized? <laughs> Uh, you think that was a good move? Thank you. Yeah. As, as I said, we have a certain number of criteria, eight, eight of them, you know, great value for money, making a difference in people's lives, caring, fun, honest, open. You know, they're all there on the website. Um, uh, but as I said, they're all, almost there to exclude other businesses rather than to say, you know, it's not difficult to tick the boxes. If you comply, it's excluding the ones we shouldn't do. You know, healthcare, for example. I mean, I, I use the um, example of, of funeral panels, but, you know, do you really want the, the, the brand on a hospital? You know, some people feel wonderful about a hospital if they've been cured, but some people lose their relatives in hospitals. So it, it's, it's not an obvious brand extension for me. And given how much else is going on, you know, I, I'd rather not try it. Now, Northern Rock. Um, it's a tough one because given where the government was, I can't think of any better way in the sense that I, I suspect you can't allow depositors in a developed country like the UK losing their money. That would undermine uh, faith in the financial system. Uh, and you know, it's, probably, it's probably not a good idea to allow it to happen. So given the fact that you should not allow depositors to lose their money, the question is, what could the government have done from day one to day, day yesterday when they nationalized it? Well, I think there are a number of questions, and I'm not being political here in the sense that, you know, it doesn't mean the other guys would have been any better. But my question is, why didn't the FSA, for example, intervene any earlier? The Financial Services Authority, the regulator. They must have been seeing this thing sort of creaking at the seams, and they didn't intervene any earlier. Um, 
again, some of these might be rumors rather than facts, but on day one I, hear, I heard that Lloyd's TSP made an offer to just take it off the hands. Maybe that would have been the simplest thing. Before, before confidence in law is lost, before the queues are formed outside the branches, just sell the damn thing. You know, make it somebody else's problem. Um, and then it became difficult because then everybody knew there was a problem and the government had to step in. And then there was the moral hazard that, you know, if you're stepping in, you're, the, the government is guaranteeing the deposits and their loans, so, you know, why back out? Um, I have a theory about Richard Branson, and I hope you'll forgive me for saying that, but I, it's a compliment, actually. Uh, I think Richard is excellent at getting free publicity for himself, so he made an offer which was too good to be accepted. <laughs> in, in other words, he made an offer at the price that the government wouldn't accept. So he got all the pre-publicity for these months, and then you know, the government had to be left holding the baby. In a, a more a different way of putting it is, he said, I will only buy this at a price that I can make a lot of money. Fair enough. So the government took the view that you know, privatize, uh, nationalization, take a view about restructuring, sell it later, might make more money. But I am not in favor of nationalization. I think the government is the worst possible business person. You know, the quicker they can, you know, send it back into the, into the free markets. W one interesting idea I have on that is that um, I don't know if you, you've ever discussed it in, in detail in, in a class, but if we had a Chapter 11 in Europe, if, if the UK had a Chapter 11, which is the system where you put a company into uh, a court process where it's reorganized uh, by ranking the, the claims. So you say, you know, equity, equity holders are, are gone. The first ones will be wiped out, and then you start um, apportioning the debt holders, and you give them so many cents to the dollar, which is what they do in the States. And eventually the company reemerges out of bankruptcy under a court protection with enough sort of net worth to, to operate. Uh, you know, that, that might be a, bit of, a better process than nationalization. You, you allow a judge, basically, to decide who gets paid and who doesn't. Um, you know, I, I think this country, if it wants to... If you're serious about promoting entrepreneurship, you have to do something about this downside I described earlier. You have to keep putting money in to, to, to stop the company from going under. A good way to make that less painful and onerous is to have a Chapter 11. So you, you voluntarily put the company into Chapter 11 and reorganize it yourselves. Other than equity holders, you know, a few other people are actually hurt. So does that answer your question on Ron the Rock? Yeah, thank you. The lady. Hello, my name is Kat and I work in advertising. Um, I wanted to ask you who do you admire in business and why? Or who's the person you most, who's the person in business that you most admire and why? Most admire. Um, inevitably over the years you meet a number of people you, you think are you know, worthy role models, but it's kind of difficult to identify with a single person. So um, I've mentioned already two people, my father and Richard Branson. And I wouldn't like to be like either of them 100%. I can see, you know, uh, you, know, you know, things in their personalities that I wouldn't like to identify with. Uh, but, you know, the, you know I, I, I've used them as role models in, in various aspects of my business career. A um, couple of other names I'd like to mention. Uh, the founder of IKEA, uh, Ingvar Kambrad, um, a, billionaire, a billionaire many times over, but very low-profile guy. Um, some people believe he's actually as wealthy as Bill Gates but you can't see it because IKEA is a private company. Um, and he's so, uh, what I liked about him when I had the honor of meeting him a few years ago is that he's very humble. 
He flies EasyJet, actually. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, I think, the most amazing thing about him. Mm. One more name. Um, a guy who is uh, uh, frustratingly and embarrassingly close to my age is Michael Dell, who, who is a guy who actually created one of the world's biggest PC companies. For a time, he was the world's biggest PC company by being single-mindedly focused in one business, which is the opposite of what I'm doing. <laughs> So again, you can see the pros and cons of focus versus diversification of brand extension versus I'm in the PC business. Did he drop out of college or not? I don't remember. He started, I think, the business from Austin University dormitory. Yeah. And, you know, 20 years later, he lives up the hill in a huge mansion and the company, the biggest employer in the town and one of the biggest in the world. So, you know, there's something to be said about focus. And I think Michael is doing that very well. All right, let's go back up. Lady up there. Hi, I'm Alex and I work in marketing. I'm just wondering, do you fly EasyJet or of, do you fly of by course private I do. jet? Of course I do. What do you expect me to do? Every- <laughs> no, I, I, think, I, I think because of the environmental debate, I've talked myself out of private jets. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I've criticized them so often now that I couldn't be seen on them. So, um, no, I, I, in, in Europe, whenever EasyJet is available, I fly EasyJet or other commercial airlines if they're not available. I'm not that wealthy anyway, so commercial. <laughs> Gentleman over there. I, I, I was pointing at, yeah, blue sweater. Um, hi, Stelios. Um, William Wong from the RSA. Uh, you talked about caring on several occasions. Um, I was just wondering what the prospects of using your tremendous brand value in creating and supporting a truly sustainable lifestyle might be. Thank you. A truly sustainable? Lifestyle. Uh, environmentally sustainable lifestyle? Yeah, socially, environmentally, because I see the, the portfolio, the mix of your business is tremendous. Really, it's about lifestyle. That's how I see it. I was just wondering, in the current climate, um, of climate change and so mm. on, what's the prospect of turning all these brands into fostering sustainable lifestyle? The problem is each of the companies is uh, owned separately. It has different shareholders. So it's very difficult to get all of them together to, to do anything. Um, even if you could, um, my view is that you know, people will always mix and match in the sense that people will fly EasyJet and stay in an expensive hotel or would fly British Airways to get on an easy cruise, or would um, you know, get on a mini cab to come to London but stay in an easy hotel rather than an easy bus. So you know, it's kind of difficult to, to um, expect people to be using all the brands all the time. You know, certainly even I have a problem doing it all the time. There's a, there's a time and a place for everything. And, uh, it, might be, it might be asking too much from the brand to actually say, you, know, you only use easy branded products. Gentleman over there. Okay, we'll take the one at the top. Yeah, okay. Fine, fine, fine. Since you have the microphone, please. Uh, John Shenton, University of Essex. Um, To what extent do you think the program airline dissuaded people from flying EasyJet and consequently using the Easy brand? Um, When I took the decision in 98, uh, I had very little downside. The company was not known, so anything that gets the, the, the brand in front of 11 million consumers every, every Friday, it was a welcome addition, even if it was focusing on problems. Um, over the years, we 
kept sort of re-engaging with them. The last one was just done. Um, you know, as the company becomes bigger, it becomes a PLC, it becomes more conservative in its decision-making. I don't know if there's going to be another one. We just haven't made the decision. Um, one of my fears is if, you don't, if EasyJet doesn't do it again, some other startup airline will do it, and then they will become famous. <laughs> so you, you're, you're allowing a competitor to, to sort of take the spotlight. Um, I have no way of knowing for sure whether people have been dissuaded or not. The way I try to explain it is that, um, you know, it's actually a dramatization of, of real life. It, it's selective anecdotes of what's happening in order to make interesting television. So, you know, hopefully an intelligent viewer would not assume that every flight is like that. And hopefully what we'll remember is the brand and they go on the website and they book a, t a ticket when they're thinking of flying. So, you know, uh, always risks in that. Okay, and we had one in the f second row. Uh, hi, Stelios. My name is Colin. I'm an entrepreneur and a part-time MSc student. And um, my question kind of relates to something you were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, specifically in relation to uh, cross-selling. And uh, you've got this brand extension idea, which we've been doing for the last uh, 10 years. Uh, and you do see some similar things, uh, companies integrating to try and cross-sell in-house. Banks, it's been a big phenomenon the last 10, <coughs> 10 years. Uh, my question to you would be, how important is cross-selling for the success of brand extension specifically, especially given that as the easy group isn't mm. as integrated as a lot of other groups yeah. who share a brand, how possible is it and how necessary is it for the success of the brand extension mm. strategy? Well, the way the group is structured, brand extension happens without free cross-selling. There is some cross-selling, but it happens at market prices. So um, EasyBus is available on the EasyJet website. If you're looking to find ways of getting from Gatwick to London or from Stansted to London or from Luton to London, so at the relevant page you will see uh, an EasyBus entry alongside other competitors. It's a non-exclusive agreement. Um, and there is a payment at, uh, you know, at market rates from the one company to the other. Um, but the, the rest of the group actually doesn't do much business with each other. Um, <coughs> I, think, I think you need to distinguish between um, simple cross-selling that, for example, EasyJet is doing on its own website. So, yes, you booked your flight. Do you want a hotel? And the hotel could be any hotel, you know, of any price. It doesn't matter. You know, it could be a five-star hotel because sometimes that's what people want. Or the separate and distinct process of saying, I will start a hotel company that will have its own buildings, its own design, its own rooms, its own bathrooms, you know will have its own brand values, and you know, either people take it or leave it. It doesn't mean that every EasyJet flyer would, would, would actually end up in such a room, but you know, that's a separate business. So I try to distinguish the two. So cross-selling within a company is okay. Cross-selling between companies, I think, you, know, you pay for it, so it's not a free lunch. Sorry, I should, next time I should aim to go closer to the microphone rather than make the, the lady work so hard. Hi, uh, I'm an MSc student here at the LSE in organizational and social psychology, uh, but my background is in environmental sciences. And I've, I have to say that I'm very heartened by your story and the way that you respond uh, to the environment and, and EasyJet and Easy Companies. 
I believe that travel is a way that we awaken individuals to what's happening environmentally. I'm also very heartened to see all my colleagues here that are here on scholarship, thanks to you. And I guess the question, or maybe seed I want to plant, um, is there's a, a large amount of debate about whether carbon offsetting is really a viable option or not. And I'm wondering if maybe a more progressive option might be easy companies or easy jet offering scholarships to those interested in environmental pursuits. Um, I think we can see that you are a great leader of today yeah. coming out of education. Um, and uh, what are your thoughts on that as a possibility? I mean, scholarships is a great way of giving back, and, and, and that's what I'm doing. It's an interesting thought that now the environment is becoming so important, maybe I should allocate some of my scholarships to environmental pursuits. Um, now they're allocated, uh, there's some reserved for my home country, Greece and Cyprus, but other than that, you know, they can be from, I think, any, uh, yeah, any, any LSE discipline. Um, I, I think we have to distinguish between scholarships, in other words, really sort of helping someone go through uh, education and enterprise in environmental themes in the sense that um, inevitably, as this is a bit of the Wild West, um, people are trying to make money out of the, the process and there will be a lot of people who will start and try and rip off people and you know, cheat and, and, and make claims that are not true and everything else. So I wouldn't equate giving back to investing in an environmental startup. <laughs> Because that might be a cutthroat business that's there to make money and it might sort of not be doing uh, that much good for the environment anyway. So, you know, I, I, I think there is a place for venture capital. If you really want to you know, back some of these businesses, fair enough. And there is a place for giving back, for, for being, uh, you know, repaying your debt to society. Um, for example, the extreme, again, my, my friend Richard said that I will give $3 billion to environmental causes over the next 10 years. If you look at the small print, um, investment in nuclear reactors is even allowed. You know, I, I think that's all giving back. <laughs> I mean, fair enough if you want to invest in a nuclear reactor, but you know, it's not exactly charity. Um, it may reduce carbon emissions, but it has other problems. But you, know, you can see the difference between making money and giving back. And I think sometimes I, I'm always confused with social entrepreneurship. I, I always meet people who say I'm a social entrepreneur. I'm not only here to make money. Uh, and I say, well, yeah, fair enough, but do you make money or not? Well, yes, we're here to make money. Um, so why is this different from EasyJet making money and helping people? So, you know, I, I try to keep things simple. There are businesses that are there for a profit, and there's giving back. Thank you. Um, I'll come down here. Where's the microphone? There's there. Okay, let's take the, the lady right at the end here. Hi, Stelios. Uh my, I have two questions. The first question is that what do you consider as your biggest risk in your business or your brand, and how do you actually manage that? And the second question is um, on the note of social entrepreneurship, uh, what is your take on, the, say, the Bill Gates Foundation? Will you actually set something up like that, or what are your guiding principles mm -hmm. on, on, on that theme? Yeah. Um, what's my biggest risk? Um, I try to, because I, I keep things diversified, uh, I'd be hard-pressed to find a single risk, but I, I guess what I'd be worried about is a perfect storm. You know, more than two or three businesses going wrong at the same time. And consuming capital and consuming time and, you know, me being uh, unable to cope with them. So, you know, if, if something, uh, September 11, for example, happened again, 
and the businesses are not in a good position, and, and yeah, you know, you're forced to keep putting money into businesses, then that might be uh, um, difficult. Um, Bill Gates Foundation, I don't know the details of it, but I, I think it's actually a foundation that gives money for charity. I mean, it's very well run from what I see, and they have the money to run it well, and, you know, they, they've hired some of the best PR people in the world to turn Bill Gates from what was essentially a hate figure into almost a saint now. Uh, so, you know, well done to them. I mean, you know, I don't have a problem with it, but, you know, it's not that long ago that, you know, there were chat forums on the Internet hating Bill Gates and Microsoft because it was a monopoly. So, you know, he's decided that he had to give back, and he did it in a very professional way, as you would expect from the world's richest man. And I think he's improved his image enormously. He tends to give a lot. I mean, I don't know. That's what I see. He tends to give a lot in Africa and faraway places. And, um, you know, my priorities are my own backyard. You know, it's not a coincidence I started from my school, <laughs> you know, for, for scholarships. You know, I was sitting in that seat over there in, in September of 84. And, you know, coming back here and interacting with the scholars and everything else, it's, it's close to home. It's, it's satisfying. So, you know, I, I think that's my priority now of uh, sort of solving the AIDS crisis in Africa. I leave that to Bill Gates, um, Bill Clinton, and Bono, I think, are they going to solve that, <laughs> especially Bono. Now, um, it's 7.30, and I've, um, I, I know that there was um, a discussion that I might be able to attend the reception you have upstairs, but unfortunately I won't be able to because of a prior engagement. Shall we take one last question? Yeah, one last question, then I have to be excused. You've asked one, so I won't take I'll take a new one. I don't think I've taken one from you, so the gentleman over here. Yeah, um, well, one question split in two. First of all, uh, how did you decide on the orange, orange color of the Easy brand? It always comes yeah. up. <laughs> Amazing. Well, some people I, should, I should remember, actually, to mention it at the beginning. <laughs> some people say it's the color of innovation, so I'm yeah. curious to, to hear whether that was the, the reason for choosing it. And, and secondly, uh, how, many, how much does the success of your business actually depend on branding and marketing as opposed hmm. to you know, business process? <clears throat> Branding helps, but you need to get the business model right. So, you know, um, paying too much for cars doesn't help car rental. You have to, you know, buy cars at the right price and everything else. Uh, orange. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with an anecdote as well, a very brief one. Um, I was sitting in um, Luton, close to the airport, in a design house, a small design house. Uh, up on my computer, the um, photograph of an old 737-200, which was the aircraft that didn't exist yet that I leased, and we tried to put different colors on the tail fin. That's all I wanted to do at that stage. And we tried different colors. And the only one that other airlines are now using in the UK is orange. You know, blue, white, and red is used by most other airlines. So I wanted to stand out, basically, in an airport, and people remember that color. In the early days, I was very um, hands-on at the airline. And um, I think it was probably within a year or two of that um, sort of decision to paint the whole thing orange and launch it. Uh, no emails back then. It was a call center. People, someone was trying to get through to me. He's had the, you know, these Greek guys running this airline. Um, got through to me. Um, said, um, I'm a great fan. I've already booked uh, my honeymoon flights with you. Um, but, you know, and I, I realized he had a request. Um, so how can I help you? He said, unfortunately, the engagement broke down. So I, I 
preempted the next question. I said, so I assume you need your money back. I'll give you a refund. Although normally we don't give refunds, but because you go through to me, I'll make an exception. He says, no, no, I don't want a refund. I want to change the name of the person traveling with me. <laughs> <laughs> On this note, thank you very much. Good luck. <laughs>